Welcome everybody. This is the uh, Retina UK information webinar. Um, this is one of a series of webinars we're hosting uh, and we deliver uh, one most months on a different topic. My name's Kate Arkell. I'm the Research Development Manager at Retina UK. Um, in today's Ask the Expert session, we're really pleased to be joined by Samantha De Silva. Sam is a consultant ophthalmic uh, surgeon at Oxford University Hospitals NHS Trust, and she specialises in retinal conditions. Uh, and she'll be answering your questions this evening. My colleague, Jane Russell, who is uh, our communications manager at Retina UK, is also here in the background, and she's going to help be helping out with managing questions and uh, the tech side of things. We have received quite a lot of questions in advance, so we'll be working our way through those and thank you for sending them in. If you haven't already asked your question or you think of one uh, during the session, you can type it into the Q&A box in Zoom at the bottom of your screens um, and those questions will then be asked uh, by me or Jane on your behalf. We will endeavour to answer as many questions as we can However, any questions that we can't get to today will be followed up over the next couple of weeks. If your question hasn't been answered in a couple of weeks time, do feel free to get in touch with us. So last week was National Eye Health Week. So let's begin with a couple of questions uh, about general lifestyle and eye health. So Sam, what are your top three lifestyle tips for supporting overall eye health if somebody's living with an inherited retinal condition? Um, so, well, thank you, Kate, for the invitation to uh, join this webinar. Um, in terms of the top three things, I think the number one by a long way has to be to stop smoking, um, because really, if you look at all the evidence from multiple different trials and different eye um, conditions, so age-related macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, but also the few studies that there are in inherited eye disease and an inherited or genetic disease does tend to be the least well-researched out of most retinal conditions, given that it, you know, overall is probably one of the least common. Um, but all of those consistently show that smoking is, is bad for your eyes. So um, either causing earlier onset disease or more severe, you know, progression or more severe mm. disease. So um, the number one thing, if if people smoke, I advise them to try their very best to stop smoking. Um, and obviously that can be difficult. You know, it, it's not a, a straightforward thing of just walking out the clinic door and, and stopping, but there is a lot of support and a lot of help out there to help people do that if they, if they want to, um, you know, go down that route. So yeah. you can get referred to your GP for smoking cessation, um, support and there are sort of programs to, to help with that so um, so definitely you know I would say that's number one um, and sort of the, the second thing we always mention is diet um, really not again because there's a huge amount of evidence in RP or in um, or in uh, retinal dystrophies but just looking at broad more broadly eye health and uh, retinal disease so um, the general advice we give is eat a healthy, balanced diet. So um, lots of coloured, highly coloured fruit and vegetables. So sort of bright, you know, bright things, red peppers, kale, carrots, um, you know, um, even egg yolks and things like that okay. have um, a, a beneficial. Uh, and 
really, you know, there's no specific one food that is necessarily a superfood for the retina, but just eating a good balanced diet with, you know, if you can do your five fruit and veg a day and um, all that, you know, the, the, the usual recommended um, things that we should be ideally doing, then that's, that's really good enough. Um, and then the third thing that we always mention, because it's an easy and straightforward thing to do is UV protection. So if it's a bright sunny day, wear sunglasses um, or a wide brimmed hat, because we know that ultraviolet lights uh, can be toxic to the retina, can be harmful to the retina. And so um, if it is particularly sort of sunny, then then do wear sunglasses. Um, I appreciate that can be difficult when, you know, if you have RP, then obviously you don't want to cut too much yeah. light out because then that can make navigation difficult and so on. But it's it's finding that balance of, you know, on a very you know dazzling day, then then do do wear that protection. Brilliant. Thank you. And, and related to that, um, we get a lot of questions. We've had a lot of questions about supplements. So to clump all of that together, are there any nutritional supplements that people should be taking or shouldn't be taking? Um, so for most retinal dystrophies, really, again, there's not a lot of specific evidence looking at nutritional, you know, any nutritional supplementation. Um, over the years, there's been a lot of discussion about vitamin A. Um, in So there's vitamin A in RP and there's vitamin A in Stargots, which are two sort of different issues. Yeah. Um, so if we think about vitamin A in RP, this um, essentially all came from a big study from a group from Burson's group, who's a very eminent um, physician sort of about 20 or even 30 years ago now. And what they looked at was um, vitamin supplement A supplementation in RP and whether that would affect progression. And given that, and it's very, so they did show that there was a beneficial effect, you know, in that study 30, probably 30 years ago now. Um, but it's difficult to know how to interpret that, to be honest, because one, it's never been replicated again. Okay. And secondly, they used the things they looked at were things that were quite, that we now think are quite variable, such as visual field tests um, okay. to, look at, to look at um, outcomes. So nowadays in modern clinical trials, we would use things like, um, you know, imaging OCT scans, uh, you know, very objective um, measures to look for a treatment effect or not, whereas the things they used were more like visual fields and um, electroretinography, so um, electrophysiological testing, which can be much more variable. So, um, and there was a, was a big Cochrane review subsequently looking at all of these things, and the sort of overall evidence was not really in favour, um, not not harmful, but no no clear yeah. benefit. Um, and so we've really moved away from advising people to take specific supplements um, if they have RP. Um, so really the evidence I give my patients is, is what we've sort of said before to have, have a healthy balanced diet and, and do those, you know, just the usual lifestyle measures. Um, you've obviously got a separate question of vitamin A and stargots, which is sort of a, a different thing. Um, yeah. And essentially in stargots, because the ABCA4 gene is involved in transport of that 
um, the visual cycle of which vitamin A is a part, there's a lot of laboratory work that indicates that, you know, too much vitamin A is, is detrimental and um, is hard to process by the retina. And so for patients with Stargardt, so with either a clinical um, phenotype of, or picture of Stargardt, so when we look, it looks like Stargardt, or they've got a confirmed genetic change in that ABCA4 gene, um, we do advise avoiding vitamin A supplementation. So um, we do need, we all need vitamin A in our diet. We, you know, if, if we don't have any vitamin A, then that causes problems. Vitamin A deficiency is a, you know, is a big cause of, is, you know, is a big problem worldwide. So it's not, but, you know, dietary vitamin A is still important, even okay. if you have star guards, but just not over and above because yeah. vitamin supplements tend to have 100, 200 times the recommended amount of vitamin A. And then you'll, you know, it's harder for your body to process that. Yeah. And so um, we had an interesting question um, that sort of packs onto the back of that. Uh, should people with Stargardt disease avoid using skincare creams containing retinol because, because of that link to vitamin A or are the amounts really just far too low to worry about that would be absorbed through the skin? So we know that most of your vitamin A is absorbed from your diet. So really kind of 95 to 90% of vitamin A is, is dietary absorbed. Um, and, you know, there's minimal absorption of, of vitamin A through the skin. There, there is some, but, you know, very little. And really on balance, it, that, you know, there's no evidence. Nobody's really done a clinical trial of looking at these things and how, how much is absorbed and what the levels would be. But given that we need some vitamin A, I, I think probably, you know, a vitamin A, a little, a tiny bit of vitamin, because it is a very small amount in these creams generally is, is probably fine. Um, but if you were taking, you know, uh, a retinoid drug for acne or something like that, then obviously that's different if it's yeah. oral. And then that I would speak to your, you know, GP or doctor looking after you um, for those purposes before, um, before going down that route. Thank you. Um, change of subject. Um, so what progress, and this is always a, a popular topic, what progress is there regarding stem cells and stem cell-based treatments? How far away are we from stem cells being used to replace degenerated retina? So as I'm sure this audience kind of knows very well, um, stem cells have been looked at for quite a long time now, um, essentially because theoretically they're the ideal solution. So you have a population of cells in the retina, either rods or cones or both, that's not working so well. And so as those cells become less healthy and either stop working um, or die away, if you could use stem cells to replace them, then, you know, in theory, that is, is the perfect way of restoring your, your vision. Um, the problem, you know, we have in the in the lab and in, in research is is twofold really one is getting those cells to survive so if you take an external um group of cells and put them in the retina you know they have to be there and stay there for a long time to to have an effect so that's one thing and the second thing is they have to talk to the other cells within the retina because there's no point putting in a nice new layer of cells if that's not going to 
connect to the to the next layer because really vision is a is a pathway you have your rods and cones that detect the light but they then feed the signal into the next layer of cells which then you know cascades up and really it's you know that signal has to get to the brain for you to be able to see so um so there have been you know a number of, of stem cell trials both for age-related macular degeneration and a few for inherited retinal disease but really out of all the potential therapies, stem cells are probably the furthest away from actually coming to the clinic just because of all those challenges I've mentioned. It's, you know, safety, getting them to survive. Will they talk to other cells? It's, it's all been quite challenging um, from, even if in the lab, in a sort of mouse model or, or that kind of very controlled environment, it seems very promising. It's, it's much harder to do in a person or, or so on. So there are multiple teams around the world, you know, there are companies that are starting stem cell trials as well, that, you know, in early stages, looking at safety studies, there have, you know, been a few along the way, as we know, and um, AMD, also um, one of those uh, studies recruited Stargardt patients, but overall, there's not, um, there's still quite a long way to go in terms yeah. of, of getting there. I wonder if it's worth mentioning at this point, just for this, to avoid any confusion, that that there is a company, JSite, who are who are doing in the middle of trials at the moment and yeah. are talking about starting a phase three trial, who are injecting a cell based therapy into the yes. eye, but they are not. They've quite clearly said they're not aiming to replace exactly retina that's already gone. What they're trying to do is support and nourish the remaining retina. Absolutely. So there are two ways that you can use stem cells for therapy. Um, so what I was talking about is replacing cells that have gone. So once you have vision loss, can you restore vision by um, replacing those, those retinal cells? But another strategy is what you've just mentioned. So stem cells, or, you know, cells in the retina produce lots of different factors. There are lots of growth factors and neurotrophic factors that help the retina to survive. So another way of doing it, or another sort of avenue of therapy is to inject stem cells for that purpose, not to sort of connect with the remaining retina and, and form sort of pathways, but more to just release all those nutrients and nourishing factors to try and promote the, the health of the surviving cells. Yeah, so that's that's really aimed at people who haven't lost all of their vision yet. Yeah. Um, off the back of that, somebody's asked, what's the likelihood of a treatment that can significantly restore sight in the next 10 years or is that further off? I think you've kind of partially maybe answered that question, but I know it's really hard to put a timeline on things. Yeah, so I mean, there are a number of different ways of approaching sort of vision rest, you know, in an ideal world, complete vision restoration, but at least some improvement in vision. So one is stem cells, as we've already mentioned, but the two sort of other broad areas um, that people have been researching for, for a while now are retinal implants and also what we call optogenetics, which is a form of gene therapy um, to try and restore vision. So again, with retinal implants, there were, you know, there've been multiple clinical trials, um, both looking at um, inserting a chip, an electronic chip underneath the retina or on top of the retina. So to try and um, electrically stimulate the cells that are remaining um, 
to, you know, to try and restore vision and a visual, visual function. And both of those um, approaches in clinical trials did show good outcomes. So they did show improvements in vision and, um, you know, some improvements in visual function. So that's the, the original companies that started those trials are no longer functioning um, at the moment, as far as I'm aware, but other trials are starting up or ongoing looking at retinal implants. So that is one thing. And then the, the other um, avenue of research is, as I mentioned, sort of optogenetics, which is a, a type of gene therapy. So essentially, normally in gene therapy, what we associate is a, you know, replacing a specific gene. So um, somebody yeah. has a, a variant or a, a change in one gene that's caused, you know, causing their eye disease, and then you replace a healthy copy of that gene. Whereas in this form of gene therapy, it's more aimed at um, patients with more advanced sight loss. So who've already lost a significant amount of vision. And what you're doing is you're introducing a light sensitive protein into those remaining cells. So to try and make the, the retina that's left work like rods and cones or be light sensitive when, when that normal infrastructure is lost. And you know, there, um, there are a few now, I think there are four um, clinical trials ongoing for optogenetics. So that seems to be the one, one of the ones that's kind of moved a bit in the last few years. Um, and there's a, a trial that's run jointly between Moorfields and, um, well, it's led by a French team, but they also recruited some patients from Moorfields and they published um, outcomes from their first patient in Nature Medicine last, last year, I think, um, and showed some visual gains, some improvements in visual function um, using specific tests. So kind of ability to identify objects on the table or, or kind of broad parameters of vision. Um, and that also, as well as the gene therapy, involved wearing a pair of glasses to, or, to sort of augment or enhance that stimulus of light to, to really target um, one wavelength um, to, to get that protein that was introduced to work. So potentially, I think, you know, given that there's a lot of commercial interest now in optogenetics, there's a lot of money and effort and time being pushed into it. I think that is something that we could see results from um, yeah. sooner rather than, you know, potentially sooner than something, some of the other therapies, um, but also retinal implants, if, you know, the programs can get going again. Um, we know that the previous ones did show promise. So it's trying to, to, uh, to, push those things further yeah and it's exciting that actually those those things are all uh, not gene specific which obviously has has some advantages because hopefully a really large proportion of our community would would be able to to benefit from those um just before we move on to the next question just a reminder if you have a question um please could you type it into the q a um box in zoom um we're unfortunately unable to respond to a raised hand this evening so if you could type in your question that would be um really much appreciated um so moving on to uh, a topic a little bit more about genetics and the practicalities of inheritance um so questions come in. I have two sons. One has RP, one does not. Um, they in turn each have children. And I'm concerned about my grandchildren's risks of inheriting the condition or carrying it to pass on to future generations. What's the best way for us to understand the risks for each individual in the family? So um, I 
completely appreciate you know the question um it's one that we get asked a lot and i think when patients come or um people come to clinic it's one of the things that you know we is is top of the list of things to ask um uh, so the first thing is really to understand the inheritance of the the retinal dystrophy um and sort of in broad terms there are three or four different ways that genes can be inherited. Um, and so from the scenario that's given, it's difficult to tell what that inheritance would be because essentially what we would do in clinic is take a, you know, draw a family tree. So try and work out um, if there are any other members in the wider family. So that could even be parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, you know, all of that information is actually really important. Um, so to, to try and, you know, ascertain that. And then based on what we see in the rest of the family tree and the pattern of disease clinically, we can often sort of estimate or suggest a mode of inheritance. Um, but the only way of really knowing that for sure is genetic testing, if we're, you know, able to do that. So, so broadly, um, just to sort of think about inheritance, there's autosomal dominant disease, recessive and X-linked, and sort of what that means to not go into too much sort of technical detail, but from every gene in our body, we inherit one copy from mum and one copy from dad. And for dominant diseases, you only need one of those copies to be affected. So either the, the gene you've inherited from your mother or your father. And that means that any children would have a 50% risk of being affected. Um, so, you know, one child, if you have two children, you know, each has a 50% risk. Yeah. Um, autosomal recessive conditions require both copies of the gene to be affected. So the one you inherit from your mom and the one you inherit from your dad. And in those situations, it there tends to be less of a family history. So it tends to be, you know, not so common in other family members, although it, it, in certain situations it can, you know, you can see um, other family members. But in that case, it's really, you know, your children would need to have two affected copies of, of the gene. You would, um, they would be inherit one from, from the affected um, individual. So they would definitely be a carrier, uh, but, we generally quote the risk of them being affected as less than 1% because we don't know what, you know, their part, um, your partner's um, genetic makeup is and, and so on. So, um, and then the other is X-linked. So for our sex chromosomes, um, we have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. So um, if there are genetic changes on the X chromosome, then, you know, sons, if, if it's a, if you have, if it's a met, it sort of gets a bit complicated. I don't want to sort of get bogged down in the detail, but if a male is affected, then their sons will not be affected and their daughters will be carriers. Yeah. Um, so it, it's all kind of dependent on multiple things. So it's hard just to say from a scenario of an individual what their risk is because it's dependent on, you know, all of these different things that we're we're talking about. But like I said, from the family tree, you can ascertain a certain amount, but really genetic testing is what we would advocate to, to know in more detail. Um, so what that involves is a blood test, uh, which is sent off to a central lab. And um, essentially, 
what we do is look at, uh, or what they do in the lab is look at certain genes primarily, which we know are associated with retinal disease and look at changes in those genes. Um, and it can be quite hard to interpret because obviously we're all genetically different. That's what makes me different from the next person. And, some and it's about interpreting those genetic changes in the context of what you're seeing clinically. So um, it's not as simple as sort of doing a blood count and putting it in the machine and getting an answer out the other end. There's yeah. quite a lot of complex processing and then any changes you see have to be validated with what's been published before, what's known, et cetera, et cetera. So really in, in adults, we sort of normally quote a sort of 50 to 60%. Um, it can be a bit higher um, or it sometimes can be a bit lower, but about sort of a, a 60% uh, positivity rate from doing genetic testing. So in about almost two thirds of patients will be able to find a result. Um, and in about one third of patients, we won't. And that's either because the technology hasn't been good enough to sequence every single bit of the gene, or that we just don't know about those genetic changes yet. So generally what happens then is that blood is stored in the lab and as new discoveries are made, as new reports are made, you can always go back and visit that to try and understand things further. But if we can identify the gene, then that gives us a much more, um, well, gives us the ability to counsel much better on risk to children because we know in general then how that gene behaves and you know what we would expect to see. That's really useful actually because that links to another question you've already sort of answered which is I've I've had genetic testing and, and there is no result and why why can't it be identified so you've kind of covered that um, the person said we've got children and grandchildren and no idea if it will pass to them even though the 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 genetic test hasn't given given a definitive result would a genetic counselor be able to support in that scenario and perhaps help the person know a little bit more about risks to other to other family members exactly um and and that would be really important so i would definitely advocate reaching out to um, the team and asking to speak to the genetic counselor because like i said based on family history and the what how the you know the eyes look and um, what the disease looks like we can sort of sometimes give a, a fair impression of what we think the inheritance might be so um, there's always surprises but but in general you know you can you can advise um so i would definitely you know ask for for support and and the genetics counselor of the team who did the genetic testing should be able to do that okay and in case there's anybody uh, on the on the um, on the webinar who would like to know more about how to access genetic testing and genetic counselling, um, we have got some information on our Unlock Genetics uh, website, which you can access from uh, retinauk.org.uk forward slash genetics. And there's lots of information on there about genetics, inheritance, uh, but also uh, ways of accessing testing and genetic counselling. So do have a look at that. Um, bit of a bit of a change change of topic. Um, so I have RP as a result of Usher type two. I know a lot of research has been done on RP, and we would all like to see a cure as soon as possible. However, it seems to me a lot of eye problems come from having cataracts. I personally have had cataract surgery in both eyes, and this has been followed with edema um, and PCO needing laser treatment. 
My question is, why are cataracts prevalent in RP? And is there any research on how to prevent cataracts? Um, so it's a very good question. And um, as with an, a number of things, like, you know, with eye disease in general, really, we have no exact answer as to why cataracts are do seem to be more or are more prevalent in, in patients people with um, RP it's definitely something we we see not uncommonly so um, you can develop cataracts at an earlier age and it, there's a, it, there are certain different types of cataract and it's one particular type that we often see associated with RP um, and you know there's no exact answer as to why why that happens the theory is that there's some degree of inflammation within the eye as a result of this de degenerative process that's going on from the loss of rods and cones and lack of, you know, lack of cells. And the, the kind of hypothesis is that inflammatory component may bring on cataract earlier because we do see cataract in other types of inflammation or, or, or so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, there's no exact mechanism that's understood or you know um anything i can say more clearly than that in terms of how to prevent in rp in particular there is no you know nothing's been studied as to how to to stop cataracts from forming but just generally as per sort of all the eye health advice we know smoking can accelerate cataracts so definitely don't smoke um, there is some evidence that uh, you know ultraviolet light can be um, can be bad so again it's just kind of all the the usual eye health Same things yeah, yeah exactly it's it's nothing specific but just you know eat well don't smoke and uh, you know UV protection a cataracts, there was a, an add-on to the question that I didn't mention, actually. Is there any possibility that in the future there will be a non-surgical treatment of cataracts or are cataracts purely a very sort of physical need-removing type thing? Yeah. Um, so I think, obviously, if, you know, as with anything, it would be nice not to have to have an inter interventional um, procedure. But um, so if, you, if we imagine... The eyes like a camera a cataract is the natural lens in the eye that's gone cloudy over time um, so really what we do at the moment is remove that cataract and put a new lens in its place um, and because it's really such overall I mean I know people have um, complications well you know the the person who mentioned they need to have PCO which needed lasering or or they might have developed macular edema which might have needed further treatment in terms of drops or so on Generally, it is a very successful operation in terms of, you know, it's the highest surgical volume procedure done on the NHS. I mean, okay. it's really um, something that is generally very successful. And I think for that reason, the research into looking at other ways of doing it is, is less um, less so than with other things where we don't have a therapy. And there's always advances in terms of how we can do cataract surgery better. So um, there's uh, laser procedures that can be done at the time of cataract surgery, that's being explored. There's sort of ways of making it more efficient than, you know, the machines and lenses and all that aspect of things are advancing every year. Um, but uh, um, in terms of actually trying to get rid of an operation in its entirety, I think um, 
is, is probably quite far away. A bit too yeah. tough, yeah, yeah, for now. Um, let's, um, actually, one more question about sort of, I suppose, sort of treatments. Can you tell us any more about infrared light therapy and whether this could be beneficial in inherited retinal disease? Um, so as the, the majority of studies looking at infrared light therapy have really been for early or dry age-related macular degeneration. Um, so looking at, and there are some now um, high street, both op optician optometry practices and private practices that offer uh, light therapy. So um, it's got a long name, photobiomodulation, sorry, name that escapes me at the mo moment I need it, um, where you wear a light mask for a certain period of time, uh, you know, and have regular treatments with that. Um, and really, as I said, it's been investigated the most in um, age-related macular degeneration to try and slow down the progression of early AMD. So before it kind of um, impacts significantly on vision and, and vision loss. In inherited retinal disease, as far as I'm aware, and there are things changing all the time, but there hasn't been um, a big trial that I'm aware of, but that's something that I'm happy to, to look up. And even in AMD, the evidence is a bit mixed. It's a bit unclear. It's okay. not like we're going around advocating that people do, do this, okay. um, but there are some trials that have shown potentially some positive results and I think they need further validation it's not something that's available on the NHS mm -hmm. um, and it hasn't sort of gone through that regulatory process um, so from the infrared kind of therapy that's what I'm aware of on the the flip side in RP there are lab-based studies which look at light toxicity because we know that as we've talked about you know light can be harmful to the retina and there have been in mice and other, you know, very laboratory-based um, research programs, some evidence that cutting out certain wavelengths of light can slow down um, progression. So it's another one that is, you know, the jury's out a bit on. We don't really give any specific advice or um, because there isn't really the evidence base to back it up at the moment. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Let's go back a little bit more to um, to research. Um, firstly, we've, we've had a question actually in the chat this evening, which is quite nice and, and, and a specific one about a specific research technique. Are there any CRISPR trials ongoing for reversing or halting um, sight loss? So CRISPR is a, is a gene editing technique uh, where you can go in and actually change the gene, correct it. Absolutely. Um... So there is, um, it is exciting in that, you know, the um, retinal disease is one that CRISPR have, trials have, or a CRISPR trial has started in. So um, the, the, there's a company called Editas who um, leads this trial, and it's for a specific gene, the CEP290 gene, which often causes very early onset um, retinal dystrophies or, or retinal problems. And it's not just specific to the gene, it's specific to the, a particular genetic change within that gene. Because as, as Kate mentioned, the um, premise of CRISPR is you go in and you, rather than 
in gene therapy where a gene's not working, you replace a healthy copy of that gene. In gene editing techniques, you correct the native sort of DNA, you correct the bit of the gene that's not working. And so what you have to do is introduce a small segment with the right sequence in. So, um, you know, there's rather when the, the bits of the gene, are, the sequence isn't correct, you sort of introduce that correct um, element to it. And so it's very specific, but there is a, a CRISPR trial ongoing for, for CEP290 um, variants, I think mainly in the US, um, there might be some other sites. And they did release a press report, I think, on the first few patients showing safety. Um, so, you know, with any clinical trial, the first thing they look at well in a phase one trial is safety so you have to make sure that your anything you're trying doesn't cause any adverse effects so it's well tolerated there's not a lot of inflammation or um pro problems in the eye by giving it so you know that's very um you know positive that they showed good safety data from the initial few patients but we're still waiting to to know more and to mm -hmm. see sort of um a bigger cohort of patients coming you know results from them coming through and I suppose there is a challenge associated with the fact that it is so specific mm -hmm. so you've got to really drill down into your own genetic diagnosis to know if you would ever be um, eligible for that particular treatment because it's it's dependent not only on the gene but also the type of change within that gene um, so just to talk about that briefly that is a challenge isn't it in in this in this in inherited retinal disease we've got all of these different genes and so so many treatments appear to be coming through that are so specific do you think which way do you think it's going to go generally in the future do you think there's more it's more likely that that people will end up being treated by something that is not specific to their own gene um i think i think there's a role for both obviously because the as we've said, about a third of patients don't get a genetic diagnosis at the moment. And so for those patients and for those others who present with sort of already relatively advanced vision loss, the, the um, therapies that are not specific are going to be the ones that are suitable or the only ones that are possible, really. Um, and so, <laughs> and also given that those therapies are not specific for a gene they're much more applicable to different people mm -hmm. and for that reason um, companies are much more interested in funding them because one of the challenges we have is you can do so much in the lab but to get a therapy to patients it needs a huge amount of investment and then that then gets driven by the commercial sector and pharma and so if there are therapies that are more broadly applicable they tend to get pushed a bit you know further yeah. um, saying that things like CRISPR which are very um, you know cutting edge very novel very high impact also get driven because they for all those reasons that mm. people want to you know show that they can demonstrate things because if you can do it in one disease then potentially you could do it in multiple diseases and then that again opens up the you know um, applicability from doing it in in different settings so um 
So it's kind of two different populations, because if we can treat in a specific way, you can stop things getting worse or potentially stop things getting worse. But yeah. the non-specific treatments or the less specific treatments, apart from the caveat of the stem cells we talked about earlier, giving, you know, um, factors to promote retinal health, um, most of the other non-specific treatments tend to be for restoration of vision once it's already been um, affected. So that leads quite nicely on to some questions, some general questions really about driving research progress and how we can facilitate research progress. So somebody's asked, what can we, people living with sight loss, friends and family do to help you and other researchers? For example, writing to MPs about funding or taking part in studies, um, anything like that. Um, so obviously all help is very welcome. So uh, you know, thank you for the, for the question. I think on a personal level, um, you know, we take taking part in research where possible and where you feel comfortable is, you know, is fantastic because as I've discussed, there's a, a lot, you know, a big lack of evidence for even some of the simple questions out there in terms of retinal disease or inherited retinal disease so taking part in in studies where you can even if it's a what we call a natural history study looking at just how the disease progresses over time because sometimes we don't even you know, everyone's so different in in a lot of the in a lot of retinal conditions that actually having that broad width of knowing what the spectrum is is really important in developing therapies because if you develop a therapy, you want to know what response you're kind of expecting to see. And when there's so much underlying variability, that can be quite difficult. So, um, you know, there are several groups doing natural history studies just to just to follow up over a period of time as to what changes and how it changes. And even taking part in something like that is incredibly useful from a research perspective. Um, and obviously, for some conditions, there are also a few clinical trials. Um, and you know, funding is is always a limiting factor. Um, and unfortunately, if we look at eye disease, ophthalmology probably only gets about one percent of research funding um, of all medical research funding. So it's really underrepresented, given that you know eye disease is quite prevalent, and um, you know, op in ophthalmology as a whole, sees a, a, a lot of patients um, in the NHS. So. You know any sort of support with funding fundraising all those kinds of things is also incredibly important and you know highlighting issues to to people you know people who have the power to change some of these things like mps is, is obviously um you know great as well so um that just gives me an opportunity to mention actually that if if you are listening tonight and you are interested in uh, taking part in research or, or just getting involved in studies, um, Retina UK has a lived experience panel, what we call a lived experience panel, um, which is an ever-growing group of our, of our community who have said that they're particularly interested in taking part in studies or in supporting researchers in their work. Um, and you are all incredibly welcome um, to join that. There's more information on our website. Um, uh, about that um, and 
we can tell you when researchers ask us uh, to if that they or tell us that they're looking for people to take part in in surveys and things like that. So do get in touch with Retina the UK if you'd like to know um, a bit more about that. And um, talking of funding, somebody's asked, would unlimited funding make all the, di the difference to make fi to finding effective treatments? Or are there other limiting factors like skills, human resources in the lab, the way the technology is moving forward? Um, and even the healthcare infrastructure that's needed to to live to deliver the treatments if they're when they're developed. Um, so, absolutely, it's it's a complex process, and you know, there's no answer that if you sort of solve this bit, that everything will you know fall into place magically, which would be you know the ideal solution. But I think what COVID showed us was that if there are enough people working on something and there's enough momentum and backing from the powers that be in terms of regulatory authorities, you know, um, uh, far commercial entities, pharma, drug companies, um, things can be pushed forward faster than they otherwise would be. So, you know, normally from developing a vaccine to getting it into people's arms, it takes the best part of 10 years, whereas obviously they did that, you know, in under a year for um, for COVID. Not to say that everything was done from scratch. A lot of those, the platforms for doing so were already in place. But it, yeah. my the point is that, you know, if everyone's kind of driven in the same direction, you can achieve things quicker. Um, so you know it that that does help but there is there are things that we don't know yet and so the laboratory research and um develop you know discovery research is really really important and also just there are problems that still need solving so even if you have a gene therapy some of the gene therapy trials so far that have been very successful in the lab don't seem to have shown quite as positive results in patients. Why is that? We don't know. More research is needed to understand how we jump from the laboratory setting to the human setting. There seems to be certain, you know, barriers that we still don't understand. And so it's so it's really on all fronts we need to keep pushing, keep striving ahead to, you know, try and unlock some of those um, mysteries, really. Thank you. And um Going back, we've, we've got quite philosophical there, really. So <laughs> let's go back to a few sort of slightly more clinical and, and specific question. Um, as you've had a question about cone rod dystrophy, um, so can you give us any updates generally on cone rod dystrophy research? Is there anything out there yet that might improve or maintain central vision? Um, and um, if somebody's diagnosed with uh, cone rod dystrophy in early childhood, does that central vision loss tend to continue to progress throughout life? Does it plateau? Is peripheral vision preserved? Can you tell us a little bit more about cone rod dystrophy and what's going on? So, um, again, it's the, the difficulty we have with inherited retinal disease is it can be very different between different people. And even within the same family, we can have different people whose vision changes sort of um, are quite disparate um, but generally with a so there's two kind of two conditions there's cone dystrophy and cone rod dystrophy um, is, is the start so it's it's one whether they um, have one or the other so okay. a, a cone dystrophy 
and and the way you tell them apart either is you can tell looking at the retina sometimes or otherwise doing electrodiagnostic testing so electro you know one essentially you stick lots of um, electrodes around um, the eyes or even um, you can test the visual um, cortex as well show lots of patterns and pictures and see how the electrical responses from the retina arise from that so um, if you have a cone dystrophy that tends to then be localized to your central vision um, and so the central vision would be affected but you would expect that that peripheral vision um, so navigational vision would would remain intact a cone rod dystrophy is a slightly different thing where you have predominantly the cones affected but also some of the rods affected and those can be a little bit more progressive in that you can have a um even though the predominant uh, symptom is, is central vision, there can be a little bit more peripheral involvement um, that progresses. So it's it's hard to answer the question kind of without knowing specifics of, um, you know, the what the eyes look like and um, what other tests have been done and how to interpret. But, um, but generally from the, the central vision side of things, if, someone was diagnosed very young in childhood by their sort of 20s or 30s it probably would have plateaued out in terms of the central vision loss. Okay and are, is there any research sort of specifically looking at cone rod dystrophies? So cone rod dystrophies is kind of an umbrella term for yeah. um, so rather than RP or rod cone dystrophies where the rods are affected the peripheral vision's affected first cone rod dystrophies are the opposite where the central vision is affected first and again it's dependent on the gene that's associated so you can get cone rod dystrophies for example associated with ABCA4 stargarts and in that case then there's a, a huge amount of research being done um, but some of the rarer genes or less common genes then you know people are looking at them but there probably is less um sort of less different strategies being looked at so um again yeah. it's partly dependent on the genetics as well sure um if if you're listening and, and that was your question um do get in touch with us separately i'd be really happy to to have a more individualized conversation or, or email exchange and try and find out a bit more for you if you would like to um can you tell us how uh, familial exudative vitreoretinopathy is diagnosed? Is it always picked up by genetic testing? And if not, can it still be clearly diagnosed from clinical tests? So, um, so yeah, FEVR or familial exudative vitreoretinopathy um, tends to be your primary suspicion is clinical for it. So uh, essentially in often in children or in, in younger adults or very occasionally presenting later in life as well, you see a particular pattern of retinal disease, which would make you think that this is FEBR. Um, and then based on that, you would do genetic testing. And just like in RP, genetic testing in FEBR, there are several genes that are associated, but positivity, your you know, um, genetic testing tends to come back with a result in about 50% or 50 or 60% of patients. So okay. it's not based on that genetic diagnosis alone. It's more the clinical appearance and then that's confirmed or, you know, um, 
validated a bit more with genetic testing. Okay, so so if you don't get a result, it doesn't mean it's not yes. PBR. Okay, yes, exactly. and um, we've also had a, a question about adult onset for teleform dystrophy. Is that that's different, presumably? And is it how common is it to find a gene in that? So. Um, adult onset for teleform dystrophy can be genetic. Um, so the, the problem sometimes we have in eye disease and ophthalmology is people use terms in different ways. So okay. a vitelliform lesion is sort of a yellowish lesion in, in the macular region. Um, and that can be associated with certain genes like BEST, the BEST1, the gene for BEST okay. disease, um, or another one called PRPH2. Um, so they can be associated with adult vitelliform dystrophy. But that clinical picture of those yellowish lesions in the macula can also be associated with AMD, with age-related macular degeneration. Okay. And so the genetic testing success rate in, in adult vitelliform dystrophy is much lower because you've got often an older population who are susceptible in the age group that are susceptible to both AMD and a dystrophy. And clinically, it's often very difficult to tell the two apart. So, um, so yeah, so the, the, you know, the, the result, the, the chance of getting result actually falls off quite a lot when you're looking at that particular group. Um, there are certain features or if there's a strong family history or certain things that might mean that you're more likely to find a gene. But because of this overlap with AMD, it sometimes gets quite tricky. Okay, thank you. Um, I've had a really interesting question in the um, Q&A box, Sam, and I, it's a, actually a question, sounds like it's from an educator, and I don't know if you'll know the answer to this or not. So apologies if this is sort of outside the clinician's remit, and we can do what we can outside the webinar to find an answer if so. But somebody has said, I support a pupil with RP. She's the first pupil I've supported with this condition. Coloured paper and overlays are helping her with her work. Do you know if coloured lenses can also help? Um, so it's a good question. I wouldn't be able to give a specific answer. Um, there is some evidence looking at coloured lenses. Actually, I think there was a Cochrane review that was published just in the last few weeks, looking at coloured spectacle lenses um, in, I don't think it was specifically in RP or um, retinal dystrophies, but just with retinal disease in general. I think, you know, there are certain benefits in terms of reduced glare and um, especially now that so much of schooling and work is done is computer based, then that obviously can help um, a lot. Uh, but there have always been some concerns about whether it would affect contrast sensitivity and, and that sort of thing. What I would advise is um, speaking to the sort of local low vision specialist or um, optometry team who deal with um, those specific clinics because they tend to be the most experienced as to um, what they would recommend for different groups of patients. So. Uh, Sorry, I can't uh, give more details than that, but um, but there is some, you know, certain patients definitely benefit from from it. And it might just be with some of these things, it's just a, a matter of trial and error just to see, you know, there are different colored tints, so yellow or a pinkish rosish colored tint. And sometimes it's just a matter of trial and error as to working out what suits someone best. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, we we very much um, consider QTVI as part of our professional community. So um, if you're listening and you'd like to talk to us a bit more about supporting an education, then um, do let us know. Um, just I think we, we're quite close to running out of time. One very quick last question is, um, are um, inherited retinal diseases ever misdiagnosed as retinopathy of prematurity? Um, so generally not. Um, generally, the, 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 the clinical picture for things like RP or a macular dystrophy would look very different. Um, FEVR is the only one that could look similar. Um, and there can be a bit of overlap um, in terms of, or quite a lot of overlap in terms of how it looks clinically. And so you would go with certain features in the history. So essentially, FEVR tends to present a little bit later in childhood, often, not always. Um, people, uh, babies with ROP would tend to have a history of prematurity. And um, if that were the case, they should have ROP screening as part of their neonatal care. So often, if you know, in those settings, things can be differentiated based on all the other things going on. Um, but occasionally you do get sort of older children or adults presenting um, with milder ends of those, you know, those conditions. Yeah. And it can be hard to know, especially if you don't know what their neonatal history was or whether they were premature or any of those sorts of things. So um, we have reached the end of the time that's available. Um, thank you so much, Sam. Um, I we have got through a lot of our questions that were sent in but if we haven't got to your question please do let us know we'll do our best in the next couple of weeks to get round to everybody else um so yeah again a huge thank you to sam thank you to everybody who's joined us this evening um as i said at the beginning we do hold a webinar uh, in most months uh, over the next couple of months we've got webinars on access to work and one on the use of artificial intelligence in diagnosis and research, um, and details of both of those are on our website. Um, Retin UK is a registered charity, as most of you know. Uh, we receive no government funding and rely on our wonderful supporters to raise the funds needed to provide vital services uh, and invest in research. There are a few ways you can support us in the coming months. Uh, Christmas cards, dare I say it, are now available in our website shop. Uh, we have some exciting events and challenges. So uh, Halloween and Bonfire Night Skydives uh, have got limited places remaining. These are taking place at airfields around the UK on the weekends of the 28th of October and the 4th of November. We've already tried to persuade Sam, but she's not having any of it. Um, during the new series of Bake Off, we're running our Great Bake campaign again and asking our supporters to organise their own bake sales. Um, if there are any keen runners out there, we've got places in the 2024 half and full marathons for Paris and Barcelona. Um, if you'd like information on any of those, please contact my colleague James, James Clark, via james.clark at retinuk.org.uk or simply call the office and ask to speak to a member of the fundraising team. Um, and keep an eye out for our annual raffle and the Big Give Christmas Challenge, which are also coming up. Um, we'll be sending out an email over the next couple of days, which has details of where you can re-watch or listen to tonight's webinar and details of how to book on to upcoming events. 
We'll also be seeking your feedback on today's session. Um, we really value your feedback. It's really important to us to help develop our uh, webinars and other services. So um, thank you again for joining us this evening. Thank you, Sam. Thank you all for your, all for your great questions. And we will see you again next time. Bye for now. <laughs>